Hi, I'm Christine and welcome to Expose This. I'll be reviewing Queen of Air and Darkness and since all my friends stopped reading the Shadowhunter Chronicles, it'll just be me today. Funny story, I actually had a lot of retakes for my first draft because of technical difficulties and then one of my picture frames with some booktubers fell down and it shattered so... I took that as a sign to completely redo this review. Sorry in advance for all the confusion and burps. Enjoy! Hello! Today I'll be talking about Queen of Air and Darkness by Cassandra Clare. It's the third and final book in the Dark Artifice series, which is the third series in the Shadowhunter Chronicles, the first one being the Mortal Instruments with six books, and then the second one being the Infernal Devices, which is another three books, so nine books, and then the Dark Artifice series has three books in total, so that's 12 books in the Shadowhunter Chronicles plus novellas. I'm in too deep and it's too late to stop. <laughs> um, with my experience, before I get to my review of the book, I want to talk about my experience with reading it because I first started off listening to an audiobook. Um, I heard online that it was already available at midnight and so I decided to listen with my Scribd account and Scribd is basically like Audible but it's um, like the amount of books you can download is unlimited I guess I don't someone can correct me I don't know um that's how it seems like to me but I was listening to the audiobook and this is the first time where I've been listening to an audiobook for that long and how do people do it when it gets to like the like the rated r scenes like or just like when there's sexual tension how and it was a guy reading it and it was just really awkward and i was really confused because um like it was really nice how the sadness was amplified with how it started with um, Livy's death again and how when Julian told Emma about like he drew so many Rotsies to save Livy but it wasn't enough and I was like Ugh, I feel it in the feels but then we get to the shower scene and it's very awkward like I was very confused I didn't know how to feel because it was uh I, well, I don't really like Julian and Emma, but it was the sexual tension's nice. I don't know, but then it was really weird listening to it. How do people how do people deal with that? So, yeah, when I got to the shower scene, it was 2 a.m. and I was like and I was just lying in bed and I was like it's not worth it. I need to stop like I I can wait till the morning to buy my book, but I'm not. I can take a break and go to sleep and not listen to this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, with the format of this review, I'll be talking about mainly the characters and my sh and the ships I like. So sorry if I sorry not sorry if I bounce around. First, I think I'll just begin with Julian and Emma. They're, as I said, they're not my favorite couple. So let's try and get them out of the way. <laughs> 
I actually had a lot to say about Julian. I'm really surprised. I just really love to hate Julian. Especially, I hated his whole character arc and his inability to deal with his emotions. And it was okay because Emma had Emma was going through that whole stupid phase through the first two books where she was pretending to date Mark and all the other things. So it's okay that Julian gets to be stupid this time around. Even before he headed to Magnus for that feeling spell, I wrote down in my notes that it was super unhealthy, that he couldn't properly grieve after Livy's death, and that he could only put his all into having sex. Like, oh, I already, I already knew. I should have, the whole 400 pages of him being under the feeling spell was stupid. <laughs> I feel like that could have been condensed. Um... But one thing I did appreciate about it, and it was very, I was very um, startled by this, was that how uh, <laughs> his, how intelligent this boy's responses got. Like, his responses were immediate. Um, like, when Julian and Emma went to visit Gia about Horace's whole ordeal about um, sending them to fairy and whatnot, and then there was another instance with that random shadow hunter that followed them into fairy and Julian was just so quick to understand what was happening in both um in both implications and I was like I love intelligent boys even though he's being stupid like he's smart right now <laughs> boy gets it <laughs> um another thing I appreciated was how funny his um, character descriptions got when he was defensive over Emma being attacked. Like, there were two times, like, one time when during the battle at the Unseelie court, when um, Christina was waiting for everyone to get together because she had the family heirloom and she was going to teleport them back to um, outside of the Unseelie court, but then Emma's about to get attacked, but they don't see her because they're, like, all huddled up together. And I was like, oh my god, what are they going to do? Like, I don't see... There's no other way to get out. I was just like... I was I was trying not to read ahead and spoil myself, but I, was, I also couldn't breathe because I was like, this is too intense, so what's going to happen? Um, and obviously, Julian is the one to help out Emma. And then we see how he was kneeling on her back stabbing her over and over and over with something clutched in his fist. Emma realized with a shock that it was the iron figure that Simon had given him. Like, what the heck? That was, like, any tension I had in my body was immediately released. And I was just dumbfounded. I was like, how is this even happening? Like, like who knew it was gonna, Simon's Dungeons and Dragons character was gonna come in a clutch i was like this is so ridiculous um there was also a second scene where near the near during the last battle near idris um emma and zara are fighting and then i know at one point julian comes to help out because we see how he must have looked like death in human form because she scrambled to her feet and ran, vanishing into the crowd. And I can just imagine Julian like sprinting and um, like anime sprinting towards them. And it was, I don't know, I was just like, this is hilarious. <laughs> um, this next thing I want to talk about with Julian kind of applies to all the Blackthorn boys on how smooth they are talking to their... Uh, 
partners but then they're also super dark and that's like a given with the black with like how the three books have went um but when going back to the shower scene which is immediately after Livy's death like that's the first time Julian and Emma are interacting after Julian had to bring Livy's body to um with um over to the silent city to I don't know that whole process with her body and so when the sexy times with Julian and Emma Julian's all like you're gonna rip my pants off now and I'm like what the heck is happening <laughs> and even with Mark and and during his talk with Christina about the grieving process like right after that sexy time and I'm like um I see a pattern here like <laughs> but Christina points out how his flannel was unbuttoned or like buttoned wrong and so Mark goes like I can fix that he just takes it off and I'm like what like you can't just go from being sad to like immediately like okay like it's a, it's a switch and now we're gonna be sexy time like I'm confused I was so confused um but with how dark or like how ambiguously dark the Blackthorn that the entire family is like we already know that Julian's been a really morally gray character throughout the series um like for example with the first book we see him blaming the vampire pizza guy for everything that basically everything that happened in the first book and even though Julian had good intentions it's like no one knew about it like how were we supposed to know that there were secret good intentions if you don't reveal it um also another thing that happened in this book in particular was when um was when Kit, Ty, and Drew exposed that warlock that was running the shadow market and even like it's not even it wasn't even for good intentions I feel like that warlock had every right to ban them from the shadow market and yet they planned this whole like um they had planned this whole secret mission to kick him out and like they ruined his life okay I'm pretty sure they didn't but it's just really weird how the whole theme in the three books is about advocating for equal rights among the downworlders and the shadow hunters, but the Blackthorns go around and um, don't have the best intentions with with the downworlders they're interacting with, and I don't even know what that could mean. I was just really see it's just gonna be a running joke that I was very confused throughout the whole book but I was like how can you guys do one thing but do this like it just it was being hypocrites I don't know I don't know if anyone else felt that way I was just like I you know it was it was fine because Kit came in with he like what I'll mention this later no I'll mention it now how Kit came in forgetting his weapon to this uh espionage i guess and he's just like fight me i have a fork and like what kind of shadow hunter let alone a herondale shows up to a fight with a fork like uh, what <sighs> um and also a quick thing about drew i loved how one she asked mark for permission to learn how to pick a log and then mark was like what when are you ever gonna need to learn how to pick a lock and then 
Drew comes up with this hypothetical situation with uh like a tentacle demon or something and how she's gonna drop her stele in the water and then the tentacle demon is gonna lock her and then she won't know how to free herself and then and then Mark comments on that saying like tentacle demons can't operate handcuffs and then um and then it just ending with Mark being like, okay, sure, go ahead. And I was just like, this is so precious. And we've come so long from book one to now with Mark's relationship with all the Blackthorn kids. Um, and I'm really glad that she was finally able to put that lockpicking skill into use when she freed the prisoners in the jail in Idris. But then, like, that was such a disservice because it was so quick. It was, it was, it wasn't even a full page. And we don't, I don't fully realize what happened until the next chapter where Jaime says, like, oh yeah, Drew freed me. And I was like, what? She freed everyone? Like, how? Wow. I like, I know the next, the last series is, devoted to Kit, Ty, and Drew, but, like, it would have been nice to have some explanation, you know, for 800 pages, you couldn't spare, like, another few pages to talk about her prison escape, or, like, her freeing the prisoners, I, a disservice, and also, um, be also with the prison and how Diego and Jaime were imprisoned like the whole jail plot with Diego needing to heal his brother was pointless because during school man Kyrian kept telling Diego like you can't just be waiting for something to happen that will fix your problems you have to be you have to actively be doing something but then in the next but then um, Diego's plotline follows and then he gets caught in the jail um, and he doesn't have a stele and he's just waiting for either Zara or one of the guards to give him a stele but it's like his brother his bro- Jaime should have died so that Diego's character development could have something could have happened and I hate how Anush or Amush just handed him the stele on a plate it was uh, it was just so clear that nothing mm, Uh, excuse me that nothing happened for Diego's character and he didn't learn anything anyways moving on to Emma um one thing I noticed that I really didn't want to notice was how a lot of her um sex scenes with Julian were always associated with the water like with there's the shower, the shower scene, and then later on in the book, we see them um, in the Sealy bedroom with the waterfall, and nothing happened there, but something was about to happen, and then in Lady Midnight, when they first do it, it's like near the beach, it's like on the beach near the ocean, and then in um, the second book, they do it during a random lightning storm, and <coughs> it's a weird um, just detail to have and obviously it relates back to Emma's fear of drowning and how we can attribute this to her fears of her relationship with Julian and how like either um with fears of how he's going to deal with grief fears of the feelings or like him not feeling anything fears of um 
if they have feelings to anyways, fear of how they're going to handle the Parabatai curse. And I was like, oh, okay, I see you, Cassandra Claire, I see you. But it was weird. And obviously, like, it's not until they arrive in all the, the alternate universe duel and have meaningful sex and, like, Julian loses his, uh, he, he loses his feeling spell and, like, it's finally not raining outside and there's no water. And it's like, oh, it's because, you know, the one thing getting wet is, you know, okay. um but on a serious note with their relationship I really loved how I because I'm like I didn't Emma's just an okay character to me I'm I'm glad she's a really strong character but there are much there are more characters I care about in this series but um I loved how Emma was able to stand her ground and had this enough self-worth to tell Julian like no we're not gonna yeah, like if you do not if you don't love me then we're not gonna do anything and then, like I obviously she obviously knows this from this feeling spell and how she tells him you hurt me you hurt me a lot I know you did it because of a spell but you had that spell cast on yourself without thinking about how it would affect me or your family or your role as a shadow hunter and I hate to tell you all tell you all this now because we're in this terrible place and you just found out your sister is alive sort of and she looks kind of like mad max which is cool actually but this is the only place i can tell you because when we get home if we ever get home you won't care okay fine i'm gonna take a shower if you even think about following me into the bathroom i'll shoot you and then i ain't even real like the her development gets even better because it's revealed how her body didn't know the difference between this Julian and the one she needed. And a homegirl was able to fight for her needs, even though it was so hard to resist and very tempting. Um, so that was, it was this really good representation for abusive relationships in general. Okay, I'm done talking about Julian and Emma. So before I talk about my favorite moments in the book, I want to talk about the older characters, aka Jason Magnus. Jason Magnus were like the breath of fresh air I needed from all the stupidity and confusion coming from the main plots. Um, their their like quick witted responses to everything made like, I made everything so much easier to process, and I even phys- I was even physically smiling, and like how rare is that? Um, like, there's one scene where Julian's talking about A.U. Thule, and Magnus's immediate response is like, let's talk about the important part. And then he turns to Alec and says, you killed yourself? You are not allowed to do anything like that. And, uh, Malik feels... <laughs> and then when, um, when the, when the characters get the letter that Clayson and Jer- Clay clace when clary and jace are dead and then jace is quick to say how like there had better be a morning parade we should figure out who's sending flowers um and just all of his all of his interactions with kit are so adorable like kit asking for um asking for a weapon and then jace saying you know it's nice to have family with the same blood like one day we need to take a few hours to like tell you about our lineage but also um in the talking about family taught in the epilogue when Ash comes to the Silly Queen with A.U. Thule Jace and like I already and how A.U. Thule Jace wants to see Clary and I'm like obviously Ash is gonna be in the last series so I'm not surprised 
Um, but so I don't care about any of the extra drama that's gonna happen. I care about how at the end Jay Jay said like I've been thinking about the Blackthorns. I like a big family, and so I'm just ready for Clary and Jay to settle down and start their family because it's like they both had lonely childhoods or at least like messed up child like um a a longing for more in their childhoods and now they can finally have like d- make their own family and put all their love into the into their children also Malik's wedding um not that everyone needs to get married and that uh you shouldn't make a marriage define um your life but it's been so long with these characters and it's just so nice to be along on the ride like it hasn't been a decade like I think I started reading these books in 2009 so it's close to a decade but now they're finally settling down like they already have kids but now they get to officially commence their new life together I like the feels and their vows were just so I was I was done. <laughs> it made everything ha- it made everything in the last 800 pages worth it. Um there were also a lot of random scenes with Magnus and Jace like how Magnus was our lord and savior by fi- like in part 3 when when Julian and Emma came up to him and Magnus basically told them like look y'all need to separate or else y'all gonna die. Like, can y'all stop being so thirsty for each other? And I'm like, yes, Magnus. Thank you for finally stopping Julian and Emma. <laughs> um, and how even though Malik... Not Malik. Even though Magnus is one of the most powerful warlocks in the world. Like, his children are exposing him for not being able to make balloon animals. And how they're all like, that's a snake. But Magnus is like, no, here's a headless dragon for you. And here's a crocodile laying on its feet for you. And I'm like, Magnus can't even just be, like, uh, up front with them. They have to, like, he has to pretend. And it's adorable. Um, And also near during that whole wedding scene we see we see jace on the piano and then kyrian on the flute and simon pulling out this random guitar like is that simon's guitar or is that just where did that guitar come from does simon just carry a guitar around like how he carries the dungeons and dragons character i was just like oh okay Um, another pair of characters I'm happy for is Jem and Tessa, because they're finally, they're finally pregnant, and they get to have a kid, and now they're also bringing Kit into their family, too, and it's sad, but I'm glad, I'm glad that they find, they can also start their future together, um, even though it's so sad for Kit, like, my feelings for Kit and Ty are just being dangled around, and I had high expectations for them, too, because one of their first interactions in this book is where Ty gives Kit, um, the witch light and how I was like dang this is some Clary and Jace feels like I know my ship is gonna soar today um and just how during part one Kit kept mentioning how like he kept having these feelings around Ty and eventually got to the point where he was familiar with it and didn't even question it and then uh, Ty or um Kit telling Ty about, that's what I like about you. The way you notice everything, nothing gets forgotten. Nothing and no one ever gets overlooked. And I'm just like, damn, these boys are smooth, smooth AF. Um, But 
other than that, I just, I, I, like, I've always appreciated in the last three books how much Kit knows how to support Ty's autistic symptoms and knowing how to calm him down and knowing what surroundings Ty would feel most comfortable in. And Kit is Ty's number one fan. And I felt like it was such a disservice for Ty, even... Even though Ty might not be at the maturity level to um, be considerate of other people in relation, like, in his friendships and relationships, whatnot, like, he didn't even, I feel like he didn't even reciprocate any of the feelings expressed, like, it was, um, and I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's due to his maturity level or, um, I don't know, but, um, like, I know it's a big deal that Ty always lets Kit in, Kit in on his plans, but even Kit knows that there's a thin line from losing it. And even Drew talks about, like, how, um, about how, Kit, about how Ty doesn't let her in, but then we see later on that he eventually does later let her in, and it's, it's just because, of his, like, she knows his secret, um... And so it just sucks to be dragged like this. Like during the Malik wedding when um, Kit wasn't even there. But we see him looking at the Blackthorn family and being like, okay, they're, they're okay without me. And it's just so sad to think about how all the Herondales have a sad upbringing. And um, I think Kit really developed close relations with Ty and Livy. But because of everything that happened with Ty, um, and Livy dying, obviously, he just doesn't fit in with their family, and, like, he's not close to anyone else, and he, I, like, I considered him part of the Blackthorn family, but he's, he just was like, I don't fit anywhere in that family, and, like, Ty, not, and Kit never said he loved Ty back, even though if it wasn't just, like, platonically, um, so yeah, that portal scene at the end was the one time, the only time in the book where I teared up. Anyways, to talk about something happy, happy I'm going to mention um, Kyrian, Mark, and Christina, aka Kyrarctina. I don't I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot to say. So I'm just going to say my OT3. Um... I love when Christina, when Christina and Mark are talking about their grieving processes and with Mark, how, with his history of going on with the, being, um, being dragged into the fairy land and everything and how he had to believe like he was never, ever going to meet the black, his, his siblings again and that they're going to be okay without him. Um, and then Christina saying, relating it back to her own experience with, it might be that it's easier to think of it that way. When I lost Taime, though it is not the same, but when he disappeared and our friendship ended, I grieved for him despite my anger. And then I began to wonder sometimes if perhaps I had dreamed him. No one else spoke of him, and I thought perhaps he had never existed. Um, and then I came here, and no one knew him at all, and it was even more as if he had never been, and I was like, dang, like, I need to, I, after reading that, like, I stopped and closed the book, and just had to take a few moments to 
really let all that sink in and think about my own past relationships and I was like this is too deep like I need to get back into reading um and obviously Mark and Christina get into sexy time after that and I was Mark was being so responsible when he asked Christina if he if she had a birth control rune but also like I'm not like it's so stupid just to have a include a birth control rune in this series like in this world like but I'm glad that they're endorsing safe sex even though they didn't have whatever safe sex um then after this Kyrian come, finally comes back from schoolman's and all three of them are in Kyrian's room and then it's time to sleep so Christina tries to leave the room and then Kyrian is like I want both of you to sleep beside me and I'm like yes this is the start of OT3 um and there's just so much great banter between the three of them like Mark and Christina making fun of Kyrian's sleeves and um, when the when the three of them are in Faye and they need to disguise Kyrian, so Mark throws mud at Kyrian's face, and Kyrian is like, "How dare thee!" And then Christina's like, "Yeah, Mark, how? Why?" And then Kyrian's like, "Yes, I appreciate someone on my side." But then Christina comes up and just smothers the mud on his face even more. <sighs> And then, after, like, the 100 pages in AU Thule, we come back to domestic Carrie and Mark and Christina baking, cooking, or whatever it is, like, wh- whatever you do with donut sandwiches, I don't know. Um, I'm also impressed with Christina as, like, individually and being able to prove how strong she is in the in the last battle. Um, like, I know she's a good warrior, but we never get full scenes of her in battle. Um... And so when Christina is fighting with Prince Oban and then she finally slays him, it's like, oh, my lady of roses, a.k.a. slayer of fairies. <laughs> um, I was just very proud of Christina and that she had that defining moment before the book ended. Um, and so near the end, like Kyrian's king of the, like Unseelie king, and then Mark and Christina also have to look over their own institutes and they're also um um, affiliated with the downworlder shadow hunter alliance and so i'm just like this is a strong power couple oh strong power ot3 Um, my next power couple that I want to talk about is Helen and Aline. Like, this book, like, I fell in love with Helen and Aline. Most importantly, like, Aline. But I love the both of them just as much. And it's just funny how earlier I mentioned how it was ridiculous whenever, um, it was, Julian was described protecting, protecting Emma. But then I loved it whenever Aline was protecting Helen. Like, it was my everything. Um... I felt really bad for Helen transitioning to readjusting being with her um with her siblings again cuz like with Mark we saw it was already difficult but now um Helen's entering their family again under a new context where Livy just died and so obviously no one wants to have small talk or no one wants to talk to anyone and Helen there's a very fine line to like um Helen being there but not replacing Livy um so just when Helen is like they hate me and then Aline's immediate response is like who hates you I'll kill them um and just also when Aline's making frittata for breakfast and I mean first of all 
cooking is hot. I, I, well, okay, I don't, like, the, it seemed pretty easy to make frittata, but I also never made frittata, so I don't know, but I was like, yes, Aline, be cooking, um, but during this scene, she immediately tells the children how she doesn't care if they starve or eat hot Cheetos. But this power couple has a lot to do running the Institute. So don't dare make her wife cry. I was like, yes, Aline. Yes. Even even when during... um, oh, Even when Magnus interrupted Helen and then Aline throws and shatters a lamp telling everyone to be quiet and listen to her wife like dang I need an Aline or no I need to I need to be my own Aline like I love how I love her like physical descriptions and how Helen always thought Aline was taller than her but it was only because Aline held herself with confidence and how um, Helen always loves going to Aline for her problems because she's able to see everything from all perspectives and I'm like yes also just Helen coming up with the fake registration for the downworlders and coming up with human names like Taylor Swift I was like this is the best not only was it funny but I was like these girls are true advocates true power couple <laughs> um one last character I loved um, was Diana, cause the only I'm glad there was only one sad scene for Diana, cause I was like I can't take it if Diana goes through more things, but we're not we're not given those we're not shown those things, cause Diana's not really that much of the main cast. Um, like how in the beginning when she finally found the courage and self confidence to confide in Emma and Julian about her transgender and identity and I could just I just imagined her running through the streets of um Alicante whatever and like there's this trumpets blasting in the background but then she finally gets to the house and they're not there and I'm just like she was ready she was ready to make this next step in their relationship but no but it's okay because of the rest the rest how the book treats Diana is okay. That that made up for it. Um, like she's so she's so adorable when she's just like it was late at night and she's cleaning her family's swords, but she's like making sure she's in a cute silk top just in case she gets to see her lover Gwen. And then later at night, how um she takes the active role by being direct and asking for a kiss. I was like, Yes, Diana, you get what you want. Um, and then one of the other big scenes Diana had later on on was how she was threatened by Horace to lie to lie to the council and then she willingly agrees and I thought that scene was going to go in a different direction where she was going to speak in front of the council and then she would just lie like she would tell the truth at the last minute but instead no like Horace just starts walking away and then Diana grabs his sword slashes off his arm like his entire arm and then just jumps out the window like I think I'm pretty sure she heard hooves or something outside but uh she she doesn't care she just jumps out and then she lands in the arms of her lover like true badass Ooh. oh okay I'm gonna I'm drink some water for the next part um so in this last section i just want to discuss some of the plot devices of the novel um i was really confused about how they treated mental health in this book um 
one the first thing that stood out to me was in AU Thul when Julian cut himself and I understand that it needed to be dramatic in order for his change to be expressed but a lot of self-harm starts off with not being able to feel anything and so like that's why you harm yourself but um I understand in the book that it wasn't a reoccurring issue but it was also tolerated with Emma and Magnus like obviously they were shocked by it but there was no um their only response was to fix the spell and not like check up on him mentally um then the obviously the next big thing that happened with mental health wise were the um suicide packs at the end and then once that happened i also realized how everyone kept referring to emma and julian's mission into fairy as a suicide mission and how um, throughout the whole three books, Emma and Julian are constantly telling each other that they would die for one another. And I understand that the concept around shadow hunters and the war narrative takes place in a different context other than our own. And that shadow hunters aren't aware of mental of mental health issues. But as an author for young readers, Cassandra Clare has the opportunity to present that in a present that in a healthy manner and instead of glorifying suicide by describing it as honorable i just hope she's able to change her tactics in the following series like i don't know if anyone else felt the same let me know (laughs) um anyways back to something i enjoyed um i'm surprised not a lot of readers liked the au thule but like i i could see how it was taking a long time and it was a long time a lot of time focused on julian and emma but i loved it it was the like the pause i needed to continue on with the drama in the plot like i loved how um when julian and emma see their au Thule selves and they're like this is the worst not only are we apparently in darkened in the world we're huge on pda and then they're also like the other in darkened probably can't stand us and then the first time livy and um or the first time livy and cameron pick them up in their car and then we see how livy was riding shotgun which meant she was sitting in the passenger seat with an actual shotgun slung across her lap and i was like ah, ha 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 funny <laughs> but then it turns like complete 180 when livy starts mentioning their origin story and whew, okay in the first recording like i almost cried talking about this but um when they had to board the last train to the west coast and then all of a sudden these darkened show up and surround them and julian has no choice but um to put his siblings on the train and fight like emma and julian have to fight so that the train can leave um and then how livy says how julian didn't even kiss them goodbye or that he loved them and i was just like dang why can't why can't any of the blackthorns be happy and like one why does it always have to end like this and like they were so young when that happened and like i can just see why they got so messed up and it's just um 
I don't care. Libby was always a favorite character to me, and so it just made me even more sad when she was talking about that. Um, and even when during the battle in Thule, in AU Thule, when uh, they needed to close the door, and then Livy was like, close the door. But then she knew that she was going to leave Cameron to die inside, and I was like, Cameron was her one stable source of support, and now she has to kill him for the greater good, but... She has to do that, but she has to put her own feelings aside. And I'm like, dang, this Livy is too good for the world. Oh, oh. And she also gives Ty a letter. And even though Ty didn't appreciate it, like, I appreciated. Like, I was just like, I'm a weak baby right now. Oh. <laughs> um, but speaking of... Speaking of Livy, I really, I was really touched by how Julian organized Livia's watch um, when all the downworlders and shadow hunters came together at the end. I would have much rather liked to see the organization behind that and not just having Julian do it overnight. But, you know, no, I'm going to stand by this because we had 800 pages. Like she could have, Cassandra Clara could have written this better to show that um because organizing does take a lot of work and it's not just like one person that can complete the whole thing overnight um and with the political themes in the book i'm sure like this would have been helpful for readers to see who want to like advocate in their own communities but no like we have to spend 800 pages doing of confusion with something else um also I thought it was ridicu ridiculous how everyone was awake and facing all their traumas and, like, the turning point in their plots the night before the big battle at the end of the book. Like, no wonder why they were struggling the day after. It's because y'all weren't physically, emotionally, and mentally ready. Um, so, while we bring up... while. As I bring up the plot of the end of the book, the end of the book was ridiculous. Cause yeah, I guess in AU Thule, like we had Mayors die and then Cameron and Tessa, but do they really count? No. And then Horace dies, but that's a given. Like Homeboy was gonna die either way. Um, and then during, because during, specifically during the last battle, there was a chapter where Jace and, both Jace and Diego weren't moving. So I was like, <gasps> excuse me. So I was like, it's going to be them. But no. And then uh, finally we see the turning point where Julian, where, where Julian and Emma sees the Annabelle look like demon. And Julian charges for it, even though Emma and ignores Emma even though she's saying like don't do it Julian and then because of that Zara takes the opportunity to finally strike Emma and first of all Emma did not deserve like I'm gonna talk about what happened with the parapetite curse in a few but Emma did not deserve to die at that moment like she finally chose mercy instead of taking revenge unlike Julian who ignored everything he learned in the entire book and attacked on instinct like Ju like Emma was the one with complete character development and Julian learned nothing and she did not that was uncalled for um like Julian even knew that he killed Annabelle in AU Thule but he was like no I need to make sure or whatever I don't know but Julian should have been the one to die um and then secondly 
how when Emma dies and then they're both engulfed in flames and become giant Nephilim or whatever and stop the battle. Um, and then afterwards, they're just able to go back to being themselves without their pair of runes. Like, the whole three books were leading up to the horrors of activating the Parabatai rune, but Julian and Emma are just like, fuck it. And everything goes, ends up completely and utterly fine. Like, we spent all three works books worrying about nothing it was very dissatisfying and i hate that i ended up talking about julian and emma again but for it to end like that like okay yeah it was happy that all the blackthorn children were happy and that we also ended with a happy magnus and alec wedding but a disservice it this whole three series was a disservice but it's okay because malik wedding okay that's all for my review thank you for listening bye